At one time, the Texas coast had over 6.5 million acres of coastal prairie. Today, less than one-tenth of one percent of that native prairie remains. Over decades of development, we've cut back our natural habitat that not only supports native wildlife and vegetation, but that would have helped mitigate flooding, fight subsidence, and cool the region. Local environmentalists and activists, though, have been working hard over the past decades to revitalize this habitat and to reconnect Houstonians to our historic ecosystems. I'm Weston Twardowski, an instructor in Rice University's Environmental Studies Program and the Program Manager of the Delubial Houston Initiative, and you're listening to Gulf Streams on KPFT Houston 90.1 FM, Galveston 89.5 FM, and Huntsville 89.7 FM, where we talk with leading experts and community leaders to better understand the environmental problems and potential solutions facing our community. Today on Gulf Streams, we're talking about prairie projects, why pocket prairies are popping up around town, and how they might help us to rethink our more familiar landscapes like lawns. We're joined by two experts this hour, Professor Maggie Sang, a landscape architect at Rice University, and later in the hour, Jaime Gonzalez of the Nature Conservancy. Maggie Sang, thank you so much for joining us. Um, just to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about your practice? And, and I know you're a landscape architect, but especially as we think about you know the environment, landscape architects clearly you know shape our environment in many ways. But I know that you think more deeply about it than that. So can you just walk us through a little bit about your own practice and and how you think about these these kind of broader questions? Yes, thank you so much for having me on the show today. Um, my name is Maggie, obviously, and I'm a, a landscape designer, but I also kind of um, occupy many different positions because I'm originally trained as an architect, but I would also uh, work in the urban in urban environments and in urban design. Um, and so uh, landscape architecture is actually a very small profession. It's maybe not uh, well understood by lots of people because it, it is a very small group of, of professionals. But we are we do think about the built and natural environment, thinking through living systems, maybe different from um, architects who work on building systems and, and uh, built environments. Landscape architects are really thinking about a whole range of things from plant life and um, uh, plant biology, all the way up to kind of the scales of infrastructure um, and kind of large network systems of hydrology and ecology and regional networks. So it's a really exciting profession because um, we're able to span many different scales of inquiry. Mm -hmm. um, myself, um, I have a small practice of landscape architecture and urban design, which is based in Houston, and it's called Department. We're an office of six people, and we work at all of those different scales. So um, we're, we're working on sort of typical design projects that mm -hmm. uh, might take might look like a garden, a residential garden, or maybe um, a kind of commercial landscape, and also working on larger public parks um, uh, at the scale of the bayou, for example. So, oh, wow, okay. Um, we, I think that's one of the most exciting parts of the design practice is that you're able to kind of to translate some principles and ideas across many different scales. And at the same time, because I'm also an assistant professor at the School of Architecture, um, I'm also able to engage in research. So mm. that's also a really important part of our practice is that we're kind of always mediating between design practice and building things and making things happen in the world, but also reflecting on them in sort of a broader context in a research and academic environment. So through design studios at the School of Architecture and through my own scholarly research, um, collaborating with the civil engineering department or the sociology department, um, and also through some experimental installations, um, which we'll 
we'll talk about, <laughs> uh, uh, we're able to kind of, um, you know, zoom out a little bit from a kind of day-to-day uh, design practice and think about kind of how they how these sort of design problems plug into kind of broader questions of ecology and landscape and, and the climate crisis, obviously. Yeah, thank you so much for that. I mean, I think probably for most of us, when we think of landscape architecture, we're not immediately running over to, to civil engineers and sociologists. So, I mean, that really helps understand just how broadly you're thinking through the role that landscape really plays in, in myriad issues. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the landscape design and landscape architecture, because it's it's such a specific and an interesting profession, because unlike architecture, which you know, has a very kind of storied and um, uh, uh, specific kind of path uh, that leads to kind of an, ar- an architect and training. Landscape architects come from so many different backgrounds. You can mm. come to landscape architecture as an architect. You can also come to landscape architecture as a biologist or a geologist, for example, or as an artist or an English major. So there's so many different pathways that people um, who care about the environment, who are thinking through how do I make a difference in the environment, um, uh, can find themselves in landscape architecture. I have a hunch by the end of this episode, we're going to all have a little moment of we should all be landscape yes, architects. And that's and part our... <laughs> of my that's part of my agenda. <laughs> so shifting gears a li- little bit, I know you've had a recent project where you reworked a large lawn space on campus into essentially a prairie garden, and we're really curious as to what inspired you to create these pra- prairie plots installation at Rice University? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, yeah, the installation is right next to the James Terrell Sky Space, which mm-hmm. is a very prominent kind of uh, public artwork on Rice campus. And um, on Instagram. Yes, <laughs> so and on Instagram. So if you know Instagram. Houston, you probably know the Sky Space. <laughs> Absolutely. And so the Prairie Plots is just right next to that. And um, prior to installing it, you know, um, uh, we were really thinking about Houston's ecology, Houston's mm. um, kind of endemic ecosystems. And as landscape designers, we're always interested in practice in some way and how do we actually engage the ground and how do we work with the ground, work with the environment. So um, you know, the idea really came about looking at so many of the different vast lawn spaces that exist not only on campus, um, but also at the city at large. And so we were using the campus almost as a living laboratory to mm-hmm. re-envision what some of these large-scale lawn spaces could could really be if they were thinking about kind of biodiversity, thinking about how they give back to the environment, how they create kind of healthy ecosystems. And so the project um, kind of started as a small research project that has kind of kept going, I would say, (laughs) um, and has engaged the university in in many different ways. It's about 10,000 square feet of um, previously just turf lawn. Um, and we worked closely, um, not only through the School of Architecture, but with Rice's um, Facilities Engineering and Planning Department through um, through the grounds, um, uh, through grounds, and we worked closely with them to um, replace that roughly 10,000 square feet with this prairie garden. Um, and we call it prairie plots because it's con- it consists of multiple 20 by 20 foot plots where we um, removed the turf material and planted um, uh, different species of prairie plants. And part of our goal with the project was to really see how much life we could bring back to this um, kind of monoculture, this very mm-hmm. homogenous lawn space. What do, you, what do you mean by monoculture? Can you define that for yeah, us? Yeah, monoculture um, you know, is just the kind of uniformity or homogeneousness or self-similarity of species. So in turf grasses and a lot of these lawn um, 
lawn spaces, you find only a few just only that a Saint few Augustine grass everywhere. Saint Augustine, <laughs> Saint Augustine, um, as well as Bermuda grass, mm. is a very typical kind of um, uh, turf grasses. And um, in this space, what we wanted to explore was the kind of native grasslands and ecosystems of of the um, of the Houston area. And so we were looking to kind of. Uh, Tall Grass Prairie, which mm. is a native ecosystem of the Houston region, which used to be this kind of vast Gulf Coast prairie, right? This entire region now totally taken over by the metropolis that is Houston. <laughs> you know, we can think back at, and look at kind of historical imagery and think through the and re envision what these kind of prairie ecosystems looked like. So we really wanted to, to think how do we kind of um, re envision a lawn space that is actually performing more like a tall grass prairie. And and the tall grass prairie, um, because of its extensive root systems, um, is capable of, of absorbing a lot more water into the soil. It uh, can improve soil health and it can also, through a kind of diversity of, of plant material, bring back biodiversity to these mm-hmm. kind of more homogenous lawn spaces. So it was our intention to um, bring multiple species back to the lawn, but also to create a kind of habitat. So for not only for birds and other sorts of more visible creatures, but also insects. And um, that's also a really important part of kind of bringing biodiversity back to the I'm, campus. I'm so glad you mentioned this because it's just my, my I, I walk by the, the prairie plot, you know, pretty frequently on campus, as I think many folks on campus do. Um, but, you know, I, I walked through it several times. And I remember at one point in the spring, just walking through and seeing hundreds, I mean, hundreds of dragonflies just buzzing around. And it was both, you know, visceral that I'm like, nowhere else on campus do I experience this level of, you know, oh, there's just life around me. Um, but also that it, it changed the way that I heard campus, not just the way that I saw campus or kind of experienced it from walking, but just hearing that buzzing of life was actually a really fascinating uh, kind of experience to have. And it, it brings me to this, you know, I think a broader question about, you know, I think there's a number of goals that you have. And you've already articulated some of the the more scientific and really, you know, kind of uh, healthy, you know, healthy environment goals of this project. But you're also a landscape architect. I know you're also thinking about beauty and color and and the way that our landscape impacts us in a in myriad ways. And so can you talk about, you know, what is unique to this project and the ways that you're thinking about it that goes beyond, you know, I'm sure if we wanted to, we could, yeah, we could just replace a lot of tall grass with other kinds of tall grass and be like, great, but you're doing something that I think is more nuanced with that attention to different species, with the way that you've organized the the plot. So maybe you can walk us through, for those who have not been, been fortunate enough to experience the plot yet, uh, some of those goals and some of how you've arranged it. Yeah, that's a great um, a great question and um, really gets to the kind of cultural part of, mm-hmm. of the project and the visual part of the project. And, you know, our, our sighting of the prairie plots next to the Terrell Sky Space was not um, – was, was a intentional decision um, because it's a really – highly trafficked space on campus. Yeah. So people see it a lot. People, when they go to see the sky space, they also see the prairie plots. Um, and so it's a way to also engage the public in a larger conversation about um, uh, you know, the kind of visual culture of landscape. And so mm. I think that there's a kind of assumption that, and, and this gets to the question of the lawn as well, the <laughs> assumption that the kind of flat, green, homogenous, ever, never-ending lawn is a kind of cultural ideal, mm. especially in a kind of American context, especially in a kind of suburban American context. And I think we really want to kind of question that through this project um, and to think through um, uh 
you know, biodiversity as a cultural ideal as well. And so the project is, I think, um, important because it it is living. And so people, as they pass through it multiple times in different seasons, will see it in a very different way. And we've gotten mm. a lot of questions like, oh, in the winter, someone has emailed me and said, <laughs> your garden is dead. <laughs> Which I think is hilarious and also really important to say, like, no, it's not dead. It's winter. Mm. It's dormant. Um, and to sort of engage a public in seasonal change and the idea that uh, landscapes are not fixed, that mm. environments are not fixed, that they're always evolving and um, kind of part of a set of very dynamic systems and part of seasonal change. And to be able to tune into that and to be able to, um, you know, call upon people to 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 think through careful observation of the landscape as a way of engaging it. So mm. definitely the prairie plots, if you see it in December um, or you see it in the spring or you see it in the hot, hot heat of the summer, it's going to look radically different. And I think that's part of um, the importance of kind of the durational aspect of the of the prairie plots is that you, you see it in many different stages and you just start to see and connect um, these time-based changes um, um, through through the project, and I think the other way in which it, it um, is engaging a, a public is through kind of the maintenance and upkeep of of the prairie plots. It's not mm. a um, it's not a neglected landscape. Uh, we do leave it be in a lot of ways, and we don't mow it as constantly as many of the other campus lawns are mowed. And so that is one of the important parts of the project is reducing the kind of greenhouse gas emissions that are associated with um, regularly mowing lawns and also reducing irrigation um, that is associated with with vast um, uh, turf turf lawns. But at the same time, it is, it is maintained. We do regularly... Um, uh, go in and, and assist with kind of removing some of the more invasive species mm. to give the prairie plants um, uh, more ability to, to be established and to survive. Um, and we also engage a community of uh, volunteers as well as student groups to partake in these maintenance events or these maintenance um, volunteer days. So, you know, we have a website in which we're engaging folks to, to on these volunteer days, which we might be tasked with multiple different things from um, pulling weeds to uh, covering um, um, paths with mulch to adding compost to mm. um, collecting seed. So in that way, there's also a kind of uh, important part of the project, which is about um, calling attention to the maintenance of our landscapes. And mm. people think of maintenance as this kind of maybe with a slightly more negative connotation. People don't want to maintain things or having high maintenance landscapes is really challenging and difficult. But I think what we really want to uh, push uh, against that idea that maintenance is also care. And maintenance is also a way of cultivating and caring about a space. So, you know, sometimes these prairie landscapes might require some amount of maintenance. And that is a way of engaging humans with their environment, right? It's not about mowing and blowing or applying chemicals and um, irrigating and these kind of like laborious tasks, but actually rethinking how we maintain and take care of landscapes as a kind of inherent and a really important act that we do. Well, and I think something that's exciting <laughs> probably to a lot of listeners is, you know, yes, you're talking about the, the maintenance of the site. But also, this sounds like a lot less maintenance than a lot of those monocultural, you know, kind of projects where exactly we are mowing less. We are. I'm really curious about, you know, you mentioned less irrigation and why that might be, if you want to talk a little about that. Yeah, I think that um, 
with turf grasses, I mean, there's a lot of technicalities around it, but with turf grasses, um, we irrigate them constantly. And we also mow them constantly to keep their, and we keep their root systems really, really short. So to keep this kind of maintained manicured lawn requires quite a lot of irrigation mm -hmm. and quite a lot of mowing. And so with tall grass prairies, there's not that level of, of upkeep. It's actually um, maybe once a year you would kind of cut down the dormant material. Wow. So it's a really different time of, type of time scale and really different type of um, uh, uh, way of engaging a space. And so we're not irrigating these plants because they are endemic to this region and they're used to the kind of wet, dry fluctuations mm. of, of the Houston climate. Um, so by using plant species that are endemic or adapted to the region, um, we're able to kind of reduce the amount of inputs that we that we have on the landscape. No, I mean, I, I think for, for a lot of listeners, yeah, the idea that they would only have to mow once a year <laughs> suddenly is, is a radically different idea of like what this maintenance you're talking about looks like compared to, to, to most of us, you know, are out once every other week or so. <laughs> right, exactly. And then the benefits are amazing, right? Like you have much more biodiversity. You're able to create habitat. You're able to create a healthier landscape that's not pouring toxic chemicals into the ground, right? Mm -hmm. Or um, wasting water or using, a you know, racking up your water bill for irrigation. So I think that um, in our work, we're really trying to emphasize that ecosystem health, environmental health is also human health. So they're not exclusive mm -hmm. of one another to say that like if we're irrigating less and we're not using as many pesticides or insecticides and we're not mowing with a lot of noxious greenhouse gases, that's beneficial to us as humans, but also beneficial to the environment in terms of fostering biodiversity and um, creating healthy landscapes. I know Sienna has some questions about community and ways to bring this outside into different places. Before I before I let her jump into that, I just I I do want to ask one other question purely for me because it was exciting uh, to to the little boy in my heart that you know <laughs> I, I think you did a controlled burn at one point on campus as because you've been talking about mowing, but I think at one time there was there was actual fire involved, which is very exciting. Yes, we did do. I think it was um, last spring around the end of February and early March, we worked with the city of Houston Fire Department um, as well as with um, folks on at Rice Campus um, with the grounds uh, crew and um, the crisis management team as well to conduct a controlled burn at Prairie Plots. And this is a very small burn compared yeah. to, <laughs> you know, you think of vast prairie systems, vast forested areas that get that have also controlled burns. And so it was actually a really interesting experiment, um, you know, Fire ecology is really important. For uh, controlled fire, can be really important to kind of um, continuing and um, uh, uh, benefiting the kind of prairie ecosystem. Um, and so, as humans, because we've urbanized and changed the landscape so much, we do these controlled burns as a mm -hmm. way of of maintaining these spaces, encouraging continued growth of the grassland of the grassland. And so, um, for uh, for many folks, it's very normal. Um, but I think in in the context of uh, university campus, it can be a little bit daunting. The idea of fire in the campus is not exactly an encouraging one. So it was a learning experience for everyone to talk about fire as something that's not inherently a negative thing, mm -hmm. but actually has a benefit at the level of control and management that we that we prescribe for the fire. So it was a small kind of smoldering, almost like small campfire, but it helped to um, manage some of the invasive species. It helped to um, 
encourage growth for the next season. So mm. it was both kind of an there was both an ecological goal behind it, but at, at the same time, there was also a cultural social part of it mm. where we're engaging this broader campus and this conversation around fire ecologies and around prescribed fires in more urban settings. And not at all just exciting random by goers who are, you know, passerbys like me who are just like, I'm going to sit and watch the fire now. It was also a a great uh, sight. (laughs) So kind of shifting our focus to broader communities, how can communities move away from this traditional turf grass and towards more sustainable landscaping practices, such as using more native plants in their landscapes and really just moving away from the typical American lawn? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that um, cultivating biodiversity is what maybe a big thing that I want to emphasize. Um, just so we have it. We've defined it before on the show, and yeah. I think a lot of listeners are probably familiar, but just since you've mentioned it a couple of times, can you give us a quick definition of biodiversity? Yeah. A very simple way of thinking about biodiversity is just having more than one type of thing in a space, right? Mm. So um, in turf grasses, we have maybe just one or two types of turf grasses that are that are there, so that are planted. And so biodiversity means pl- introducing additional species and especially endemic species that are adapted to the to the climate of this region is really important. And I, I, I avoid the word native a little bit because mm. there are a lot of things that can perform really well in the climate of Houston or in whatever climate people might be in um, that are not necessarily native to a particular mm. region. And and also as the climate changes, we have to be able to expand our definition of what native means, right? Um, so I use the word ad- endemic or adapted um, to be able to talk about species that are appropriate to a given place, a given set of conditions in a given climate. So um, Maybe that was getting away from the biodiversity. No, I think that's a, I think bit, that's a really good point, though, because I think there is, I, I agree, folks tend to, to really hone in on native, and we do have certain attachments to that viewpoint. And exactly as, as things are changing, recognizing what are beneficial, you know, that are the kind of the new natives, um, I think becomes critical. So I, I love this terminology you're giving us to talk around that. Yeah. So for, you know, moving away from the kind of typical lawn is thinking through, thinking about introducing additional species, mm-hmm. thinking about, um, uh, you know, not just this kind of homogenous green flat thing, right? But about how you can cultivate habitat, and it might just be about introducing one or two new plants to your to your to your um, median or to your lawn, and thinking of it more as a planted area that can support um, uh, wildlife or uh, pollinators, for example. Um, and and I, like I said before, I think it all has a kind of benefit for for us. Also, we're reducing our water bills, reducing the amount of inputs that we're bringing to to our gardens. So I think that can be a really important way of kind of substituting our typical American lawn with planting areas that might host multiple types of butterflies and uh, beautiful flowers Mm. and um, taller grasses and and also require us to kind of uh, not not input as many chemicals and um, resources into the into the land. And I was just wondering, so you have this installation by the sky space, but would you in the future ever put be able to do any other types of prairie plot installations around rice or just in general around Houston? Yeah, I think it's a kind of call to everybody to do that. <laughs> you know, I think that that's what the prairie plots is intending to do is to kind of create a a starting point and something that people can the public can engage in and then take it back to their to their own homes or to other spaces that they might have. So, you know, in schoolyards or in public right of ways or um, in sort of in backyards and things like mm-hmm. that. Like I think there's a lot of potential and there's so much latent space 
landscape space that's just covered by um, turf grass or neglect, neglected in some way that can really benefit from, you know, a community of people with shared ideals to 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 um, expand um, on on the principles of prairie plots. And it's, prairie plots is by not is by far not the only example of this. It's just one that happens to be on Rice campus. So I think there's a, also a community of people who are actively doing this right now, who are thinking about how do we um, cultivate uh, more biodiversity and less maintenance or fewer inputs um, uh, uh, in our local gardens or community gardens or in my own backyard. And I think um, uh, there's definitely a lot of potential there. Well, and to that point, I, I know something that listeners have been really interested in in the past and, and keen to learn more about is, you know, specific, and I don't, I don't need you to go through a whole list here, but, you know, specific plants they could put that might be really beneficial or that do really well in Houston, things to, to point them to. And I'm I'm curious, since you've come to the, you know, you've come through this whole project, do you have any favorite plants <laughs> you love to, to see in a, in a garden? Or Well, that's a great question. I, I think that at Prairie Plots, um, we only intentionally planted uh, a cup, like a handful of coastal prairie plants. Mm. So that, in, and one of my favorites at Prairie Plots is called the Texas Coneflower, and it's one mm. that's extremely localized to this region. You can't find it in a lot of other places. Um, uh, but the Rudbeckia in general, that kind of family of plants, is is an amazing prairie plant, and they have these beautiful, huge yellow flowers. Um, and they're they can be sometimes people think of these plants as like small and diminutive. I have but, some small purple cone flower on my patio that are not the same thing. Yeah, but they're all related in yes. a lot of ways. And so this particular cone flower is. Um, at Prairie Plots is, can be around like six feet tall. Wow. And so it's an incredible plant. Maybe that's not one for the front yard or the backyard. So <laughs> I would I would add that I think um, the, for, for your own front yard or backyard or residential landscape, I think that um, the liatris or even the... Uh, uh, the little blue stem mm. um, grass plant is a, is a great one and widely accessible at nurseries. Um, so it's easy to find and easy to plant, and it's it's a very beautiful alternative to kind of your turf grass. Well, this has been fantastic talking with you, Professor Sang. We're so grateful for your time and your expertise and this really exciting project on Rice's campus that's moving out beyond. And so I just want to thank you again for for sharing your expertise with us today. Yes, thank you so much for having me. So we're thrilled to be speaking with you again, Jaime, uh, Jaime Gonzalez. Can you can just introduce yourselves for listeners and, and tell us a little bit about your work at the Nature Conservancy and what you're up to? Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. Uh, my name is Jaime Gonzalez, and I'm the Community and Equitable Conservation Director for the Nature Conservancy in Texas. Uh, for the first five years of my role, I've been here six years, I was the Houston Healthy Cities Director. So a lot of my work has really been uh, about working with community members, the city, the county, other nonprofits, for climate resiliency, human health, and biodiversity, using the power of nature uh, and restoring nature into landscapes that are in desperate need of it. Um, so now I'm also working on how does equity uh, get infused into the conservation movement, uh, particularly with our chapter, but also with our partners. And also, how can we work with environmental justice groups? The conservation movement and environmental justice movements have not been well connected. But this topic that we're going to talk about today, uh, mowing and its impacts on human health and air quality, is a perfect place where we can synergize between conservation and environmental justice. Great. Thank you. 
And so just to, to start us off, can you give us a little bit, I know because you've done so much work around prairies in particular, and we're thinking around a little around, you know, prairies and lawns today. Uh, what, what is the historic role of prairies? Like, I, I, I know a large amount of the, the nature scape around us was prairies, but can you talk us through what does this place actually look like and, and what, what were prairies doing and why are we so invested in them still? Yeah, like why why care about prairies? They seem, they could seem very antiquated, right? Um the truth is, you know, prairies are like all ecosystems. They're very multidimensional. Um, here in the Houston area, it was the predominant landscape. Uh, mm. You couldn't go anywhere without seeing some form of prairie unless you were north of the city where the piney woods really kicked off. But, you know, everywhere from, you know, Tomball and Spring down, you would have had some form of prairie. And when you got to places like Rice University, uh, the Medical Center, the Galleria, historically, for thousands of years, it was home to an extraordinarily diverse grassland called the Coastal Prairie. Um, and and it could just be, you could just look at it from a kind of a biodiversity, biological standpoint, ecological standpoint, but that would really miss so many of the stories uh, mm-hmm. about why it's important. You know, I, I talk a lot about cultural, culturally meaningful landscapes. And when you look at Texas, you look at Houston, you look at the rodeo, um, this is the landscape that produced that, you know, classic Texas cowboy, cowgirl iconography, <laughs> our food ways with barbecue, mm. our, our music ways with the blues and country and Western swing. Um, it's where people go to take pictures of the blue bonnets. Mm. There's so many cultural references, so many sports teams that are named uh, with prairie references like the Cowboys and the Texans and the Spurs and the, the Mavericks. It goes on and on and on. Um, and then I think, you know, for me um, – Having a, a a place that makes sense that mm. that has a cultural underpinning in the ecology is really important. But at this time, you know, we also have climate change. We have huge amounts of nature disparities or uh, health disparities here in Greater Houston, and this extremely ancient landscape can help us meet those very modern challenges. So, mm. I think it's a it's a landscape that is coming full circle. There's a prairie renaissance happening here in the greater Houston area, a lot of groups working together. And it's been recognized by the city and the county as being important for resilience and for public health and for incorporation into public spaces. So I'm excited about where this is going and what we can do to even further this to create a kind of more meaningful, healthy, and verdant and wild place. Well, and I know that's something that, yeah, you've been, you know, leading a lot of these projects and, and some of those are pocket prairies. I'm sure mm-hmm. there's other things you're doing as well. But can you talk us through a little bit? You know, what are some of these projects you're mentioning that are, you know, prairies that are springing up in unexpected places that you've had a hand in, in putting together? Yeah, I mean, it's important to recognize that the strength of the prairie movement is that it's a movement. There are mm-hmm. so many groups working on this. But back in 2009, um, we held a conference down at Army Body Nature Center. And we recognized that very few uh, folks in the general public uh, knew what a prairie was, knew where to go to see a prairie, knew Mm. what the value was or anything like that. And so at this conference, we decided to to work together more closely to advance conservation and science and all the things you need for prairie conservation. But we also decided to create a constellation of pocket prairies throughout Houston Mm. to put them in highly visible spaces. And the first one that we decided on was called the Whistle Stop Prairie in Herbin Park. Um, prairie had been gone from the park for decades. Yeah. And so we worked with the Herbin Park Conservancy. We put in that first pocket prairie. And then a movement was kind of born. And there are pocket prairies and larger uh, urban prairies 
all over the city now in the Texas Medical Center, in Memorial Park, Buffalo Bayou Park, uh, on on corporate campuses and on schoolyards. And so I'm working on I've worked on a lot of schoolyard pocket prairies. And now we're working on a, a really large restoration of four and a half acres on a preschool campus in Aleaf, which I'm very excited about. So I was just wondering, what are the ecological benefits of these prairies? Why are we choosing these small-scale or residential prairies over traditional lawns, per se? Yeah. I think when you look at lawns, uh, as we know, you just have to do the deep dive. Like, why were lawns created in the first place? What were we? What messages were we trying to send? What was the aesthetic? Give, give us that deep dive really quick. Or maybe, yeah. the, maybe the quick version of the, yeah. <laughs> maybe the, the six-foot deep dive. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there's a historic... Uh, process here, which is really kind of an interesting wrinkle. You know, I think that uh, we inherited this aesthetic from Europe Mm -hmm. uh, and mostly from Europeans that were of great means, right? Mm -hmm. Because it was a status symbol. Those folks who could maintain a lawn, um, that was was a status symbol because not everybody could do that. And and what's interesting is we, you know, we got a lot of our our cultural cues from uh, the English and as we know, if you look at English uh, lawns, they're often bordered by meadows, very mm-hmm. colorful, very vibrant, flower-rich meadows. But it seems like we just took the lawn part <laughs> and we forgot all the wildflowers. And so I think it's just it's one of these things that got translated to the U.S. And it was it's really being incorporated into the visual representation of the quote-unquote American dream. Mm. Have that picket fence, have that lawn, no matter if you're living in a place with lots of water or water scarcity, you know, Mm. so you'll go to these desert cities and you see these green lush lawns on golf courses and residential areas when, you know, that's obviously not the best use of resources. And so we translated it here. um, And it, you know, we just didn't really think about it too much, but now that we are um, in the midst of uh, the climate crisis, now that we're in the midst of uh, great these great health disparities that we're looking at, continued chronic air pollution issues, uh, the need to make the city spongier to absorb more water, mm. I think that we have choices to make in terms of how we manage nature. And the choices that we make will impact people, their health, uh, the resilience of the city. So, you know, those those lawns were really built for a different century, not mm. the century we're, we're made uh, to uh, to face right now. And so it's a great time to really think about, you know, what kind of spaces do we want to have? I think that's something that I've, I've heard you speak of before, and I know you're, you're very invested in the connection between the environment that we're living in and our health. And it's something that we don't often think about as like the way that a lawn might actually impact our health. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm wondering if you can, can speak to that some, because it's really, I, I've heard you speak on it before. You've talked a little on the program about it before, but just that there's actually, you know, health consequences to the way that we're handling even something as simple as our, our front and back lawns, which we would not normally think of as, as having a lot of bearing on our immediate, you know, how healthy my kids might be, right? No, absolutely. You know, a lot of my work is really centered on the the One Health construct, Mm. which means that the health of the uh, people, the health of the wildlife and animals, and the health of the environment itself in terms of air, soil, and water quality are all super linked. So whenever you make land use choices, there are no neutral choices. They're Mm. either going to be fairly beneficial for the people, the wildlife, could be that, it you know, there's a difference between the two, but a lot of times they go in lockstep because we are biological creatures ourselves with lungs and 
and environmental needs for keeping the place cooler and not getting flooded and things like that. And so in terms of the health impacts of lawns, there was a recent study that came out that was put out by Environment Texas along with a couple of other groups. And it was extremely uh, revealing. It came out last October. And it's going to read you a couple of statistics that kind of will blow your mind. Yeah. So a 2020 data set from US EPA revealed that Harris County, uh, through its mowing and through this managed, highly manicured, managed uh, set of, of landscapes, everything from your yard to parks to houses of worship, accounts for 358 tons of particulate matter. Wow. So this particulate matter is horrible because it gets into lungs. It can increase chances for asthma, heart disease. There's some research that's linked it to increased uh, chances of having diabetes. Mm. And in the nation, we also were second in terms of a county in producing uh, nitrogen oxide and volatile organic compounds, which themselves are bad for your health, but also are causative uh, uh they lead to chemistries that increase o- ground level ozone, mm. which brings its own suite of, of health impacts. And so what you have is you have, you have a landscape choice, which is damaging to human health, in a region that has never been in attainment for ozone. Mm. Um, and then you add that on to Houston is extremely gifted from a biodiversity standpoint. We're one of only two what are called biodiversity hotspot cities in the U.S., us in L.A., but it's under great threat, that biodiversity. And there was a study that came out years ago that looked at lawns as habitat, Mm. and they compared lawns to junkyards (laughs) in terms of habitat, and junkyards were four times more supportive of biodiversity (laughs) than lawns. And and so, Uh. and then you look at other factors, and, and, you know, lawns, because of the way they're managed, Mm -hmm. they're mowed in this area, 30 to 50 times a year. So you're talking about a lot mm-hmm. of air pollution. But every time you clip uh, grass, you shorten the roots. Mm-hmm. And when you shorten the roots, there are fewer channels for the water to get down into the soil. And the soil gets hotter and harder. Mm. And so a lot of lawns, they, they have kind of a magic trick. They're kind of magicians. <laughs> they look green and lush and oasis-like. But in a lot of cases, what they are is they're very hard and hotter mm-hmm. than native vegetation. They don't soak up as much water, and they're pretty much dead zones for life. Yeah. And so they, you know, I, it's not that I have just no lawn in my yard, but I think that the thing to think about is in areas where we don't need lawn, and there are massive stretches all over the city of gigantic multi-acre lawns that are maintained for no other reason but habit. Let's reforest those mm. or put pocket prairies or wetlands that can capture water. Let's save some money over time. Let's in- improve the health of this place. And let's put in plants that actually show you where in the world you live in a city that's dominated by things like strip malls and other things, which kind of strip away sense of place, right? So, I mean, that's... Absolutely. You know, both. uh, I I think it's so fascinating. And it's one of the things that I love listening to you talk about is always that connection between our environment and our health, which I think folks are, you know, very quick to think of, you know, oh, I don't want to be next to a super fun site, right? I don't want to be next to an oil derrick that we we have a sense of, yeah, of course, if there's something really, you know, seemingly toxic next to me, I understand that has a consequence on my health. 
but thinking about the amount of air pollution generated by mowing a lawn, which we, we were talking with Professor Sang earlier about, you know, the, the kind of idea of maintenance and, and often that folks kind of have a knee-jerk reaction to, oh, prairie, ooh, a native landscape that's going to involve a lot of maintenance, right? And, and kind of having to pause that and be like, well, it's not zero maintenance because no landscape no. is zero maintenance, but it's actually a lot lower than mowing your lawn 30 to 50 times, as you were saying, a year. Um, and so that it's both this this lower maintenance, but that the way that that also directly impacts our air quality. And I think that connection is just so powerful and palpable for us as we uh, imagine these things. I know Sienna has a question that she wanted to ask you about. Um, some of what you were talking around in terms of resource management and urban development. So I'll, I'll pass over to Sienna to let you chat a little bit about how we're thinking of these things. Yeah, so... I was doing some research into the HOA laws around just in general in the U.S. and HOA is the Homeowners Association. So I know there's a lot of people that want to maybe change their conventional laws, 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 but they're being prevented from these HOA laws. So in general, like what are some steps or practices that homeowners or communities can take to try to move away from these conventional lawns to more friendlier options? Yeah, no, absolutely. And the way I think about it is um, I've started to think of when I see landscaping choices on people's um, people's lots, I uh, first of all, be non-judgmental. I mean, the truth is all Americans since they were born have been <laughs> part of a large marketing campaign mm-hmm. which has asserted that Good neighbors, that's a moral qualifier. Good neighbors maintain lawns and bad neighbors don't maintain lawns. So we, this we've is actually white picket created, fence America, that's right? right. <laughs> we, we have created not just a physical landscape, but a moral landscape mm. out of lawns, right? So that's, so let's be patient with people, first of all. The second thing I would say is uh, start small. Um, and make it look intentional. So if you're going to start uh, creating a climate-friendly instead of climate-damaging lawn, um, and and lawns that are, I'm sorry, but yards that are all lawn are climate-damaging just because Mm -hmm. of all the emissions. So let's not think that they're neutral because they're not. But if you want to have a climate-friendlier lawn, uh, I would start small. Uh, I would make sure that anything that you put in looks like a garden bed, has a crisp, clean edge, um, is put into a garden bed that, that meets kind of some standards, whether that's a reforestation area in your yard or a prairie or, or both. I would also say that um, when we look at these HOA covenants, they can be very restrictive, obviously. Mm-hmm. In some places, they're not as restrictive. Um, so check with your civic association or HOA to find out what's permissible or not. But Back when Governor Perry was the governor of Texas a long time ago, it was a state bill that was signed by the governor. And what it did is it gave limited protection against HOAs for homeowners if those homeowners were planting zero-scaped plants, which means that if Mm. you're planting plants that help to conserve water, because Texas is going to have a number of water crises in the Mm. future, that they can't ding you for that. They can't enforce those parts of the of the covenant, right? So there is limited protection from the state of Texas. Most homeowners have no idea that that's there, and they don't know how to activate that. What I would say here in the Houston area is if you go to the Native Plant Society of Texas Houston Chapter's website, 
there is information there about your rights as a homeowner in terms of native plants. Um, the last thing I would say is make it social. And what I mean by that is I would explain to your neighbors before you do it, this is what we're going to do. Mm. And if you want to take it a step further and say, look, we want to help, we're going to put in this, this little pocket prairie or pollinator garden or a little reforested area. Want to come and help? Good example is I, my whole front yard near the Astrodome in a 1950s neighborhood is a, is a little pocket prairie during the spring. Weird. Like you're <laughs> passing lawn and lawn and lawn. These kids are walking forward. There's not a whole lot to see. Or the dogs are walking forward. There's not a whole lot to see. And then, whoop, they turn their head and they're like, what is that? <laughs> it looks like there are butterflies all over the place and little avatar-like. And um, and sometimes we'll actually have our neighbors come and stomp in some wildflower seeds. Hmm. So it's not, uh, oh, that crazy neighbor is doing something. It's, <laughs> look what we have. And what I will tell you is during the pandemic, during those first very uncertain, very scary and stressful weeks, uh, weeks that uh, in March, we actually had school kids who couldn't go to school. They would come and sit on our curb and sketch the prairie and watch the butterflies and the bees. We have this natural love, this biophilia of wild things. And we, when we allow ourselves the spaces to have that, we tap into that and it's very meaningful. I think that also gets us into a kind of broader question around we do still have, you know, some prairie preserves around mm -hmm. Houston. There are some, you know, natural landscapes that have been maintained, um, but they're often under threat. And so I'm mm -hmm. wondering if you can talk, you know, you, you brought up that kind of resource management approach. But as we think about the urban development of the city, as we think about how the city continues to grow, what are the things we should be considering in how we're allocating those resources, as I, as I think you might be implying? Yeah, I think there's a number of things, too. Uh, that's a great question. There are a number of things to think about here. One is, um, you know, supporting groups that are saving land in mm -hmm. Harris County and surrounding counties. And there are a number of land trusts. Land trusts save land. It's not just the Nature Conservancy. There are other great groups like Coast Prairie Conservancy and Bayou Land Conservancy and Galveston Bay Foundation. So support those local land trusts or a group like TNC so that they can go out and save the last best places uh, in our area. That's important for a number of reasons. First of all, those are the arcs of biodiversity for the region. We don't want to lose those just for that reason. Secondly, those provide innumerable ecosystem services, anything from uh, flood mitigation to urban heat island, uh, mm. reduction of urban heat island to um, you know groundwater recharge, a whole bunch of things. But the third thing is really important when we're looking at suburban and urban landscapes, and that is what we need at this time is we need seeds and other plant resources that have evolved here for thousands of years and have seen all sorts of climatic conditions. Mm. So when we're doing it right, what we're doing is using some of these ancient old growth prairies and older forests to harvest seeds to be used in the city and in mm. suburbs to restore land. So at the Nature Conservancy, we've done it very intentionally. We have um, uh, four local prairie preserves on the edges of the city, some in Brazoria County, some in Galveston County. We've, our team has harvested a lot of seeds, thousands of pounds of seeds for, for projects in Memorial Park where they're reestablishing mm. 50 acres of prairie at the Jefferson Early Learning Center in A-Leaf. 
And there's one prairie that is like my favorite prairie. It calls the Nash Prairie Preserve, ancient old growth prairie in Brazoria County. Can you just say uh, old growth? We hear this term a lot. What, what's the significance of an old growth forest or prairie? Just so listeners have an idea of why that matters. Yeah. So I think that the term old growth as applied to grasslands is fairly new. So okay. we have heard old growth forest in relation to things like the redwood forest out in mm-hmm. California mm-hmm. and things for a long time. But a lot of times people look at what would look like just a field of flowers and things. They might think it's rather new. Uh, some of these grasslands are hundreds or thousands of years old mm-hmm. as far as we can tell. So they've been there for a long time. They have a lot of muscle memory in terms of the climate and variability and flooding and fire and grazing and things like that. They're very tough. And so they tell us they're like a blueprint for how to rebuild these things. Mm. But they're also the seed source and the testing ground for how to do this stuff. So when I think of Houston in 2036, you know, we can either continue on the course that we're on and create these very conventional spaces and more asphalt and more of all these things that make the city considerably hotter and less healthy and less spongy. Or we can create a garden city that is resilient by design, but doesn't look like it, mm. right? And so in order to do that, we need these ancient places to provide guidance and wisdom mm. and the seed sources and the other materials to get it done well. And that goes back to these these newer prairies that you're talking about, That exactly. And we just had one last question. We wanted to know what was your favorite plant for creating a more environmentally friendly landscape, like anything that you have in your own front yard? <laughs> I have lots of favorites. Yeah. Um, I thought you might. <laughs> yeah. In turn, okay, so I'll give you a few. How right. about I'll give okay. you a tree, a shrub, and a flower. Oh, Bring great. it on. Perfect. Yeah. There you go. As far as trees are concerned, oaks are prolific on mm-hmm. this campus and all throughout the city. Oak trees uh, provide lots of food for caterpillars. Caterpillars provide lots of food for birds. And so they're a great solid choice. Maple trees are a good solid choice as well. But I'll tell you one tree that people a lot of times just cut down because they call it a trash tree, which is awesome. It does drop limbs, but it's a it's a powerhouse for, for wildlife. It's super incredibly tough. Um, it laughs at concrete and it laughs at droughts and freezes. It's called sugar hackberry. Mm. It, it's growing in your neighborhood, whether you like it or not, because it's very popular with the birds. So totally underrated, the rocky of trees, as it were. Um, I would say in terms of getting started with a shrub, I'd probably go with Turk's cap. There mm. is a, a medium-sized shrub. It's a member of the hibiscus family, and it produces these beautiful scarlet red uh, flowers that are wonderful for hummingbirds and butterflies. Mm. The fruit is also edible. It tastes like a cross between a watermelon and an apple. Oh, wow. And what it does is it reminds me every time we plant something um, native like this, um, or anytime I do any sort of uh, grassland or forest restoration project in the city, It's also a reminder of the indigenous people Mm. that have been here for 13,000 years, right? So it's all of these, many of these plants have medicinal or edible, some ethnobotanical fiber thing that indigenous folks have here. So it's not just about like it tastes good or it feeds wildlife. It's a remembrance, right? Mm. It's an honoring. As far as flowers are concerned, I would say um, there are many species that you could select. I would select something like Black-Eyed Susan, which is easy to get. It is a great pollinator plant. 
Uh, any of the sunflowers that are local will work. Um, and there's just a bevy of, of wonderful cone flowers and other things. Um, and if you just type in native, if you go to the Native Plant Society of Texas Houston chapter, you can see some of the nurseries that are selling those things and go grab some stuff. If you see um, a, a really great nursery is the Houston Ar um, Audubon's nursery. Mm. They sell plants that are grown from locally collected seeds. So the genetics are right, the toughness is right, and you're also supporting a great conservation group. So I'd, I'd, I'd look at their website. A lot of times they're getting sold out now because there's so much <laughs> demand, which is awesome. But uh, there are other native growers in the area, too. Jaime Gonzalez, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great chatting with you. I have been uh, really excited to talk about this, <laughs> this work, and I just can't thank you enough for having me on the show. Great. Thanks, Jaime. And now we'll go over to our researcher, Jaden Bray-Boyce, who has an update on ways that you can get involved around town this week in Houston. Hey, y'all. I hope you're doing well. If you're looking for a fun way to get involved in the environment this week, look no further. On Tuesdays from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m., consider joining the Environmental Institute of Houston to be part of the Water Smart Habitat Volunteer Program on the University of Houston Clear Lake campus. Whether you're seeking community service hours or simply crave a change of pace, this environmental opportunity is for you. As a Water Smart Habitat volunteer, you'll play a pivotal role in maintaining the beauty and sustainability of the campus environment. Some of these tasks may include weeding and mulching flower beds, planting native plants, maintaining pathways, and trimming trees and bushes. The best part is, no experience is necessary. Never planted a flower or trimmed a tree before? No worries, you'll be guided every step of the way. If you're interested, all you need is a positive attitude, tools and gloves if you have. If not, no worries, those can be provided as well. Water, sunscreen, and a hat. Students, if you're looking for volunteer hours, someone there will be more than happy to sign off for you. You must be 18 years or older to participate. If the weather seems questionable, do not hesitate to call as workdays are canceled due to inclement weather. Though a light sprinkle or drizzle will rarely prohibit gardening. If this opportunity excites you, feel free to call 281-283-3950. Again, that's 281-283-3950. Or go to the website https colon slash www.uhcl.edu slash environmental institute slash outreach slash get involved for more information as well as for directions. So with that, happy volunteering. A quick reminder that if you're enjoying Gulf Streams, please check out our podcast. You can listen to previous episodes anytime on your favorite podcast app. We also feature occasional bonus content only available through the podcast. So make sure to subscribe so that you can keep up to date on all the news, stories, and ideas featured here on Gulf Streams. Up next time on Gulf Streams, we'll be talking about carbon capture and storage, what it is, how it's coming to Texas, and what risks might be carried in trying to put carbon back in the ground. If you have questions or ideas for what you'd like featured on Gulf Streams, leave a voicemail at 713-348-4081 or email me at westont at rice.edu. Gulf Streams is a co-production of KPFT Houston and Rice's Center for Environmental Studies with support from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and the Rice Sustainability Institute's Eco Studio. 
Produced by Weston Twardowski. Co-produced by Joseph Campana. Audio engineer Rico Enriquez. Research support provided by Jaden Bray Boyce and Sienna Yen. Stay tuned for the R&R show with Ronnie Renfro and Tom Richards here on KPFT Houston 90.1 FM, Galveston 89.5 FM, and Huntsville 89.7 FM.